0: is doing all right. It's really nice to see everyone. I'll tell you right now, it's a little cold for me. A bit cold. Going into January, I was wondering if winter was ever going to come, if it even existed, and then and then it hit. I was like, no, thank you. Thank you. Let's dive right into it. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, and then you want to mark 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So we're going to start in Matthew 16, and then we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The other week I gave a lesson on marriage that marriage is good. And you can listen to really all the sermons. It's on podcast form, wherever you get podcasts. That's M-A-C-C, worship, MAC, worship. encourage you to do that. But in that lesson, I started off with a statement that if you look at human history from just a purely secular lens, there's these two institutions that seem to somehow withstand the test of time, no matter the failure, and that is marriage and the church. And the church is what we're going to look at this morning. And I know here in Milwaukee, we talk about the church a lot, but it's because we're here to center our focus on God, center our focus on each other, right? It's loving God and loving others. That is our mission. And we want people here to be a family of believers that glorify God, to be a family That really shines a light. And a family, if you think about it, is one who invests in each other, that know each other, that spend time with each other. They're there for each other when they need help, when they're going through struggles. They're just, they're there. And that's what we're cultivating here. A loving, biblical family, family of God. Now, to understand how amazing the church is, I came across this quote while I was studying. It's a quote from an actual, actually an atheist philosopher. And it's a unique quote. It gives a unique perspective when it comes to the church. And when we read it, I'll have it up on the screen. Think of it in secular terms, because he's talking about the church and broadly, historically, and in Christendom in general. And so let's read this together to set us off. The church, he says, was an amazing institution. If you think of the buildings, the schools, the universities, the networks, the political influence, he says it was amazing. Any student of management should look at the church as the supreme institution and organization. This is an amazing statement. There is nothing like it, he says, on earth that has lasted so long. But People say that the church is corrupt. And he goes on to say, well, of course it's corrupt. It goes through many crises. Think of an average organization, right? An average business lasts 10 years. And within those years, he says it will probably go through utter corruption and collapse. And so the grand terms, the church is doing quite well. But this is the problem, right? That last sentence. Nevertheless, there's one big problem with the church. He says they really believe in God. He goes on to say, unfortunately, in the age of science, that is just not going to work. It's just not going to be possible to persuade people in an age of science all the supernatural bits of religion. And this is a pity because there is so much else around religion, which is fantastic. And he goes on to list so many things that we preach about, right? The gatherings, the sense of community, the support, the kind of pastoral care. It's all great, but it's hooked up to this unfortunate thing he calls God. Very fascinating. When we read that, to me, it should be to us an amazing confession of what we as Christians say is divine intervention. When we look at history and the church and what has happened, there seems to be in the statement this disconnect between what is su- successful and why it is successful. And so when Our worldview is that everything just happens by chance. God is never going to be the reason for our success. It's not going to happen. And yet, ironically, when we compare the church in his view, the church that has lasted longer than anything else on earth to the charities and the businesses that last 10 years, what's the difference? right? It's God. God is the difference. To me, this observation... This quote here only proves how amazing God is and how amazing his invention of the church really is. That it's willing to somehow withstand the test of time, not because, as he mentioned, and rightly so, it brings positive aspects to society and to human development, but because God is attached to it. And even further than that, because God is our leader and the leader of the church he said it would be successful. And that's why we're in Matthew 16. Let's look at that. Matthew 16, this is the passage here. The first time the word church, ecclesia, is mentioned in the Gospels. Verse 13, this is a big moment for Peter as well and his development in faith. Verses 13 through 20 of Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, and one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. I want you to take note of a little detail there in verse 13 when he tells them or he asks, you know, what do people say that I am? Or who do they say that I am? Or the son of man. In verse 14, they go on to list. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, they're one of the prophets perhaps. Notice that they don't say, you know what? Some people, Jesus, are saying, you are the Messiah. Why is that? Well, because it's not the majority view. At this point in time, most people do not think that about Jesus. And so Peter's confession here of faith, that Jesus is God in verse 16, is huge. When he says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's not persuaded by flesh and blood, by what the majority think or the crowd as so many of us today are. He's not swayed by that. It is, as it says there in verse 17, his declaration is simply revealed to him by God. Jesus says, for flesh and blood do not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. It's upon that confession, that belief, that faith, that the church will stand and it will stand forever because, as he said, Jesus is God. Only God, as we read in that quote earlier, has the power to make something last, to not be destroyed. And so when he stated that there's this unfortunate thing about the church that God is attached to it, no, the best thing about the church is that God is attached to it? That's the greatest thing there is. And that is why it continues to stand in verse 16, because as Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. To be a part of God's church is so unique, it's great. We get to take part in eternity. We're participating in eternity with God because Jesus is God. And this is the same confession all of us make when we are baptized and we're cleansed of our sin. We're baptized and we confess that Jesus is God. But counter to what many believe in our culture, that is what the church hinges on, the life of Jesus. That he lived and died and rose again, the gospel there. And this is the whole point. So our lesson this morning is to look at the church The church in that light. Jesus as our leader. We're going to look at the church and see a family that follows Jesus. What makes the church different? What makes the church successful? And there's a hinted answer in there in Matthew 16 verse 7 when Jesus says what? I will build my church. I will do that. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Whose church are we talking about here? Jesus' church. Who's going to build it? Jesus. Think about any builder who builds a house or some sort of structure or anything that they build. They're going to take care of it. If there's a crack in the foundation, they're going to tend to it. They're going to help repair it. God has been working with his church, and he's been working with his people the whole time. One of the things that makes the church different, so different and successful, is that Jesus is our God and our leader. We have to understand something before we move on, though. And Paul was talking to the Ephesians when he said, in Ephesians 5, verse 23, that Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. We have to understand that Jesus is the head of the church, and the church is his body. And so, we've all heard lessons on how we should love, and how we should care for each other. But if Jesus is the head of the body... Right, if he's our leader, the question is, how does he lead? Let's look at that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want us to dive a little deeper, to look at the leadership of Jesus in the church and how us as God's people should lead in the church or live as disciples of his. This is the go-to passage that describes famously to the body of Christ. That we partake as members of that body, each a different part of that body, of the, which is a.k.a. the church. All complementing one another, working together, all functioning to be successful. And as you turn over there, think about your own life and the lives of your friends and close family members and our lives in the church. So many people live their lives, if you think about it, by accident. We just simply live as it happens. And that's just a stoic idea found way back in ancient times, that you just roll with the punches and whatever comes, comes. And it's an old idea, but it's becoming more popular. And there's a little truth in that, but the problem is it's shallow when applied to life, very shallow. The thing is, fulfillment comes when we live our lives on purpose. And who gives us that purpose? Jesus gives us that purpose. And so there's no living life as this, Aimless accident because, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 23, those members of the body, the church, that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, the church, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it that there may be no division in the body the church but that the members may have the same care for one another if one member suffers all suffer together if one member is honored all rejoice together now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it the church is like marriage we looked at it a few weeks ago that keeps us safe, secures our salvation, at the same time makes us better than who we were without Jesus. It isn't for those, it's for everyone, but it's going to have a hard time for those who just take and take and take and never give. It's for those who really, truly want to change. That is what our baptism should have done. Marked a moment in time and in our confession, we made the choice to live Differently, There was sincerity in our belief, and we carry that sincerity on into the change of our lives. And that sincerity is what makes the church different, different from secular institutions of the world, what makes it eternally successful. All because Peter, as we read in Matthew 16, said, and was following Jesus' leadership, that Jesus is God. He changed he began to grow in that moment. So compare for a, a second, Peter in Matthew 16 and us here in 1 Corinthians 12, Peter changed. He went from what would be dishonorable to more honorable in God's sight, what was unpresentable to now more presentable. He changed and the same is for us in the church. We're elevated. We change. We work to become better than who we were, all because of Jesus' leadership. Because Jesus is the head of the church. And now we can complement one another. Now we can care for each other. We're able to function properly because he is the head. Because if Jesus, God, isn't a part of the church, then it wouldn't function like it's supposed to. It wouldn't succeed. It would most likely fail. If Jesus wasn't the head, you would have body parts working for themselves rather than for each other for themselves rather than for God. And that's the problem that Paul is trying to express to these churches here in Ephesus and Corinth, that if Jesus isn't the head of the church, it fails. It fails. So we have to understand something. Historical context here. The body analogy that Paul is giving to the Corinthians here is not a new concept for them. Right? The application of Christ's body is new, but Paul is using familiar language in this analogy here to help them understand their importance and value in the church. Because in ancient times, the Stoics would use this metaphor to describe humanity, really really humanity at large. Every individual will be a part of that body. And it would later be used by the Romans in their political speeches. It became a genre just to encourage and to cultivate unity. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's trying to cultivate unity, trying to encourage them to not divide the body here, but he's flipping it on its head. And so originally, when they took the body analogy in history and applied it to humanity, every individual represents a body part of humanity. And the motivation was that if humanity was the body, and we were a part of that, we would want to take care of each other and hence take care of ourselves. That's a nice sentiment, but it doesn't last. It's only partly true. It doesn't go far enough. See, ironically, it plays into humanity's weaknesses. It doesn't go far enough. Why? Because in the end, there's no leader. There's no head. And if there is, it's the state or it's the government or it's the gods. People end up living for their own interests anyway. Why? Because the greater good of humanity is not enough to spark change beyond each individual interest or and this is important the interest of those who have power those who are in power that's not the case though when we look at the church when we look at the body of Christ we're working for something more than just humanity we are working for the creator of humanity that's a big difference. As we read in First Corinthians twelve twenty five 25-26, the members may have the same care, it says, for one another now. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So when Paul gives this analogy as the church being the body of Christ, he's introducing, if you will, to them a new humanity, a new kingdom where Christ is the head, where he is the king. So this analogy, the church being you know, Christ's body, isn't that the church is like Christ's body. That's not the case. It's that the church is Christ's body. Look at verse 27. Now you, says, are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And so when we act out of our own self-interest, we aren't just harming humanity, harming other brothers and sisters in Christ. In a way, we're harming Christ in the sense that we are harming his body, and that doesn't help anyone. That doesn't help our relationship with each other, and it certainly doesn't help our relationship with God and us. Just look at an example with me in Mark chapter 10. Turn over with me to Mark chapter 10. Keep your marker in 1 Corinthians 12, but Mark chapter 10. I know we looked at Mark chapter 10 last a few weeks ago. And my sermon about fear, looking at Jesus and the blind man. But we're going to go and look at that chunk. The verses right above that this morning. This is a good example for us. Not because it's the church exactly, but because Jesus is leading here. And he's leading the disciples just as he would be leading the church today. It's a good example for us as members of Christ's body to put ourselves in the disciples' shoes. So look at how James and John react or act, I should say, in Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And he said to them, Grant us to sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. Stop right there for a second. Verse 35, that's a bold statement. Think about that for a second. I want you to do whatever you, you know, I want you to do. That's pretty bold. I'd be uncomfortable saying that in my own prayers, let alone to Jesus' face, and that's what they do. They say it to Jesus' face. Is this how members of Christ's body should act? We should be bold. We should ask for success in the things that we do. But what is the motive? The motive behind our wants and our desires. And what's even crazier than their boldness is that Jesus was willing to listen. He didn't take offense by their bluntness until, until well, it was about themselves. It was about themselves and themselves in power, verse 37, sitting in the glory of God. More than anyone else. More than the other disciples. And what happens? Jesus tells them in verse 38... Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. So he's saying they're going to be persecuted. Verse 40, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant, angry at James and John, which is understandable. I'd be angry too. Who are you to think that you somehow deserve to sit next to Jesus and be in his glory more than myself? we can get into that mindset. And that is an easy example to place on the church because it's easy to be angry with those in the church that think they're better than everyone else. They think that they're better than, than other Christians, more faithful Christians, and we can't fall into that trap. We can't fall into that type of thinking. We can't. And if we think about it between our brothers and sisters, just like the disciples, well, now the body is divided if we do that, because we forgot who was the head. We forgot that Jesus was the head, and we're more worried about where we fall in the body more worried about our position and our prominence. We have to rely on Jesus' leadership here. But he's going to see the body that's going to be unified. Do we remember what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 24, that God so, it says, composed, composed the body, the church, giving greater honor to the members that lack it so that there may be no division in the body, what happens when we give greater honor to those that don't lack it? We create an imbalance. We show favoritism, prejudice. Now there's a problem. No one's growing in that sense. No one's working together. No one's working for each other or for God, not as you would expect to see in a family of God. In fact, that's one of the main complaints that we see between You know, non-Christians and Christians. Non-Christians will say to Christians, why do I need saving? Right? Why do I need Jesus to save me? It seems like you accept Jesus and all of a sudden you think you are better than I am. That's some of their complaints. And it's easy to think that when we preach that we are striving for perfection. Or as I said earlier, that... The church makes us better. And they take those, and they twist them, and they take them out of context, and that's not it at all. We're not meant to be better than them. We're meant to be better than who we were yesterday. Jesus is offering us a solution here. I want you to think for a second before we dive into it. The life of Jesus, perfect, without sin. And yet, do people read the life of Jesus and read the gospel and come away thinking that Jesus is somehow better than them? No. At the very least, they come away thinking, wow, this is a good man. And we pray that they come away thinking that Jesus is God and believing that. But Jesus has a solution for us. Look at verse 42 of Mark chapter 10. He's talking to them, the disciples. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who consider rulers, considered rulers of the Gentiles, lorded over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. Just stop right there for a second. Notice, when they're angry, they're coming to Jesus. Right? They're going to Jesus, as we all should. And when he expresses to them next what a body without Christ looks like. The body of humanity, what that looks like. there's just people lording over other people. People, you know, body parts fighting for control, if you will. The body of humanity, expressed by the Stoics, by the Romans, by people today and our culture, is just killing itself because Jesus isn't a head. Jesus is the head of the body. The members make up that body, the church. And now what are we to do as that body? Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, not to give, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's an encouraging passage. Because servanthood is the only way that we can improve ourselves while also not coming across as thinking or believing that I'm better than you. That's the only way. The problem that people have is they think that they can confess Jesus without then serving like Jesus That's a problem. Or even changing their life. Our faith is not about claiming or believing in Jesus and then doing nothing. That's not the case. Our faith is about helping others improve. Helping others find Jesus. It should be our mission to make others better than even ourselves. To be a servant, as it says in that passage. To be a slave, as it says in verse 44. A slave and a servant to who? Our best friends and our family and those that we know the best? Jesus saved all. And what does it say there in verse 44? If we are Christ's body, we are to act like Christ. And whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. We should serve all. We should serve God in a way that we're also being a light. And we're serving others as well. And the final thing, the last thing that makes the church a little different, more different than any groups or businesses or charities or institution is found back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's turn back over there for a second. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This sums up together what we've been talking about. I want to ask you a few questions here. If people can improve without God, what's the difference between us and them? If people can get over addiction without God, what's the difference between them and us? What is the difference we can keep going on with those examples. They're just easy examples. And we looked at two earlier. The confession that Jesus is God makes a difference. That we're serving as Jesus served all. That makes a difference. But there has to be something a little deeper than that if we are truly different. It has to be more than that. Christians make fewer mistakes or mistakes less often or are somehow more conscious of what is moral. There has to be something deeper. Just to give you an example of that, the fact that people, whether Christian or not, mess up. Here's a study done in 2016, seven years ago, called the porn phenomenon, which tells us that 57% of preachers and 64% of youth ministers admit they have struggled with porn. And that's not just the general populace. I'm pointing that out to show you that people mess up, that we struggle. That's not uncommon to see. It has to be to some degree The difference has to be to some degree that God's power and ability is evident in the church and in God's people. Let's read verse 1. So what is that difference? 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now I'm not saying that we'll have miraculous gifts. We don't have miraculous gifts like they had, the Christians had in the first century. But that doesn't mean that these verses don't apply. That we should then white out these verses and cut it out of our Bible. That's not what I'm saying at all. We don't do that. They still do apply to us. The question is how? Because we always talk about the latter part of this chapter. Talking about Christ's body and us being different parts. Which is great. But we skip the first 1 through 11 verses. Now we have to be careful when looking at these verses. Not to speak where the Bible doesn't speak. But what does it say? you look at the pagans here they were christians they were pagans before they became christians because they were led by mute idols they were led to them and paul is saying here to them that that worship was an illusion you were actually leading yourselves they were mute how different is that for us today for so many in the world to be leading themselves to think that they're making a difference but it's an illusion you see we worship and we serve a god that really does lead us. When Peter made his confession that Jesus was God in Mark 10, it was revealed to him by God. We cannot truly be changed, be a transformed, renewed person, as we talked about last year, and see, and say, I should say, in verse 3, that Jesus is accursed. We can't. According to verse 3, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit when we confess that Jesus is Lord. And so we go on our text. Look at verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Not saying we go charismatic. Not teaching or, you know, speaking in tongues or healing people. But what is the point? We're working together through the Spirit for the common good. Right? We read that passage and we see that in the church there is this diversity, which is good. And we know that in our culture it's pushing this diversity, which is good. But sometimes it takes it to an unhealthy extreme where then it divides again, ironically. However, we do see diversity in the body of Christ. And it's diversity being powered and connected by the same Spirit, the same Lord, and the same God, as we read in that passage. The only way diversity works is if it's unity found through the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, diversity, practice in the world, it fails, and then it fails, and it fails, and it becomes just another example of body parts working against each other. We have to be connected in Christ. Our diversity and differences between individuals is what makes the church different. Different for the common good, but it's diversity connected in the Holy Spirit for, as it says there, the common good. Common good is very important because it brings everything that we're talking about here this morning together in perfect harmony. That we are moved by the Spirit, and we confess that Jesus is Lord. We serve each other as one body connected by the Spirit, and we rely on His power to move us forward toward eternity. The Holy Spirit is working, often in ways that we don't understand, but working. All of this It's working, though, and this is important for the common good, the common good of God's people, of his church, a church that is different, but people who are different than the world. And if Jesus isn't God, and if he's not the head of the church, and if we're not connected by the Spirit, then the church is no different than any club or human institution at all. These things are what makes God's people different. It's what makes his church a city on a hill that can't be hidden, a light that reflects his glory, shines a light on others. Our goal for this message is for you to walk away empowered and encouraged to be a part of God's people, to be a part of God's family here at Milwaukee. And so as you go about your week, I want you to ask yourself, what are you doing to become an active part of his church? Are you forgiving where maybe you've been kind of withholding forgiveness? Are you talking to those that you need to get to know that you don't know that are on the other side of the building? Are you, you know, asking someone who's struggling, hey, how can I help you? Right? What are we doing to be active? If you want, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 3. It's our last passage we'll read as we close. You can follow along with us or you can listen as we read together, but it sums up perfectly exactly what we've been talking about. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. I love this passage. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that according to the wealth of his glory, that he will grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner person, that Christ will dwell in your hearts through faith so that because you have been rooted and grounded in love, and you will be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and thus to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you will be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power that is working within us is able to do far beyond all that we ask or think. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I know that this is a family at Milwaukee that tries to practice that, that does. I couldn't ask to be, a better, to be a part of a better church family. I love it. My prayer is that we can grow in the love of Christ that we can become filled up in the fullness of God. If this verse encourages you, then write it down, memorize it, underline it, put it somewhere where you can see it, and ask yourself, what are you going to do this week and today to serve? If you haven't experienced the love of Christ and you want to be a part of his body, we're all connected in unity through one baptism baptizing in the forgiveness of our sins, if that is something you want, and to be a part of his church and be his people, then come forward now while we stand and we sing.